Chapter Six of the Power House by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Chapter Six: The Restaurant in Antioch Street. I was working late at the temple next day, and it was nearly seven before I got up to go home. McGillivray had telephoned me in the afternoon, saying he wanted to see me and suggesting dinner at the club and I had told him I should come straight there from my chambers. But just after six he had rung me up again and proposed another meeting place. I've got some very important news for you and want to be quiet. There's a little place where I sometimes dine. Rappaccini's in Antioch Street. I'll meet you there at half-past seven. I agreed and sent a message to Chapman at the flat, telling him I would be out to dinner. It was a Wednesday night, so the house rose early. He asked me where I was dining, and I told him, but I did not mention with whom. His voice sounded very cross, for he hated a lonely meal. It was a hot, still night, and I had had a heavy day in court, so heavy that my private anxieties had almost slipped from my mind. I walked along the embankment and up Regent Street towards Oxford Circus. Antioch Street, as I had learned from the directory, was in the area between Langham Place and Tottenham Court Road. I wondered vaguely why MacGillivray should have chosen such an out-of-the-way spot, but I knew him for a man of many whims. The street, when I found it, turned out to be a respectable little place, boarding houses and architects' offices, with a few antiquity shops and a picture cleaners. The restaurant took some finding, for it was one of those discreet establishments, common enough in France, where no edibles are displayed in the British fashion and muslin half-curtains decked the windows. Only the doormat, lettered with the proprietor's name, remained to guide the hungry. I gave a waiter my hat and stick and was ushered into a garish dining-room apparently full of people. A single violinist was discoursing music from beside the grill. The occupants were not quite the kind one expects to find in an eating-house in a side street. The men were all in evening dress with white waistcoats, and the women looked either demi-mondaines or those who followed their taste in clothes. Various eyes looked curiously at me as I entered. I guessed that the restaurant had, by one of those odd freaks of Londoners, become for a moment the fashion. The proprietor met me halfway up the room. He might call himself Rappaccini, but he was obviously a German. Mr. Gilvray, he nodded. He has engaged a private room. Will you follow, sir? A narrow stairway broke into the wall on the left side of the dining-room. I followed the manager up it and along a short corridor to a door which filled its end. He ushered me into a brightly lit little room where a table was laid for two. Mr. Gilvray comes often here, said the manager. He will be late sometimes. Everything is ready, sir. I hope you will be pleased. It looked inviting enough, but the air smelt stuffy. Then I saw that, though the night was warm, the window was shut and the curtains drawn. I pulled back the curtains and, to my surprise, saw that the shutters were closed. You must open these, I said, or we'll stifle. The manager glanced at the window. I will send a vader, he said, and departed. The door seemed to shut with an odd click. I flung myself down in one of the armchairs, for I was feeling pretty tired. The little table beckoned alluringly, for I was also hungry. I remember there was a mass of pink roses on it. A bottle of champagne with the cork loose stood in a wine-cooler on the sideboard, 
and there was an unopened bottle beside it it seemed to me that macgillivray when he dined here did himself rather well the promised waiter did not arrive and the stuffiness was making me very thirsty i looked for a bell but could not see one my watch told me it was now a quarter to eight but there was no sign of macgillivray i poured myself out a glass of champagne from the open bottle and was just about to drink it when my eye caught something in a corner of the room it was one of those little mid-victorian corner tables i believe they call them what-nots which you will find in any boarding-house littered up with photographs and coral and presents from brighton on this one stood a photograph in a shabby frame and i thought i recognized it i crossed the room and picked it up it showed a man of thirty with short side whiskers an ill-fitting jaw and a drooping moustache the duplicate of it was in macgillivray's cabinet it was mr routh the ex-union leader there was nothing very remarkable about that after all but it gave me a nasty shock the room now seemed a sinister place as well as intolerably close there was still no sign of the waiter to open the window so i thought i would wait for macgillivray downstairs but the door would not open the handle would not turn it did not seem to be locked but rather to have shut with some kind of patent spring i noticed that the whole thing was a powerful piece of oak with a heavy framework very unlike the usual flimsy restaurant doors my first instinct was to make a deuce of a row and attract the attention of the diners below i own i was beginning to feel badly frightened clearly i had got into some sort of trap macgillivray's invitation might have been a hoax for it is not difficult to counterfeit a man's voice on the telephone with an effort i forced myself into calmness it was preposterous to think that anything could happen to me in a room not thirty feet from where a score or two of ordinary citizens were dining i had only to raise my voice to bring inquirers yes but above all things i did not want a row it would never do for a rising lawyer and a member of parliament to be found shouting for help in an upper chamber of a bloomsbury restaurant the worst deduction would be drawn from the open bottle of champagne besides it might be all right after all the door might have got stuck macgillivray at that very moment might be on his way up so i sat down and waited then i remembered my thirst and stretched out my hand to the glass of champagne but at that instant i looked towards the window and set down the wine untasted it was a very odd window the lower end was about flush with the floor and the hinges of the shutters seemed to be only on one side as i stared i began to wonder whether it was a window at all next moment my doubts were solved the window swung open like a door and in the dark cavity stood a man strangely enough i knew him his figure was not one that is readily forgotten good evening mr docker i said will you have a glass of champagne a year before on the southeastern circuit i had appeared for the defence in a burglary case criminal law was not my province but now and then i took a case to keep my hand in for it is the best training in the world for the handling of witnesses this case had been peculiar a certain bill docker was the accused a gentleman who bore a bad reputation in the eyes of the police the evidence against him was strong but it was more or less tainted being chiefly that of two former accomplices a proof that there is small truth in the proverbial honour among thieves it was an ugly business 
and my sympathies were with the accused for though he may very well have been guilty yet he had been the victim of a shabby trick anyhow i put my back into the case and after a hard struggle got a verdict of not guilty mr docker had been kind enough to express his appreciation of my efforts and to ask in a hoarse whisper how i had squared the old bird meaning the judge he did not understand the subtleties of the english law of evidence he shambled into the room a huge hulking figure of a man with a thickness of chest which under happier circumstances might have made him a terror in the prize ring his features wore a heavy scowl which slowly cleared to a flicker of recognition by god it's the lawyer chap he muttered i pointed to the glass of champagne i don't mind if i do he said here's health he swallowed the wine at a gulp and wiped his mouth on his sleeve have a drop yourself governor he added a glass of bubbly will cheer you up well mr docker i said i hope i see you fit i was getting wonderfully collected now that the suspense was over pretty fair sir pretty fair able to do my day's work like an honest man and what brings you here a little job i'm on some friends of mine want you out of the road for a bit and they've sent me to fetch you it's a bit of luck for you that you've struck a pal we needn't have no unpleasantness seeing we're both what you might call men of the world i appreciate the compliment i said but where do you propose to take me dunno it's some lay near the docks i've got a motor-car waitin' at the back of the house but supposing i don't want to go my orders admit no excuse he said solemnly you're a sensible chap and can see that in a scrap i could down you easy very likely i said but man you must be mad to talk like that downstairs there is a dining-room full of people i have only to lift my voice to bring the police you're a kid he said scornfully them geezers downstairs are all in the job that was a flat catching rig to get you up here so as you wouldn't suspect nothing if you was to go down now which you ain't going to be allowed to do you wouldn't find a blamed soul in the place i must say you're a bit softer than i hoped after the handsome way you talked over the old juggins with a wig at maidstone mr docker took the bottle from the wine cooler and filled himself another glass it sounded horribly convincing if i was to be kidnapped and smuggled away lumley would have scored half a success not the whole for as i swiftly reflected i had put felix on the track of tuke and there was every chance that tommy and pitt heron would be saved but for myself it looked pretty black the more my scheme succeeded the more likely the power-house would be to wreak its vengeance on me once i was spirited from the open-air world into its dark labyrinths i made a great effort to keep my voice even and calm mr docker i said i once did you a good turn but for me you might be doing time now instead of drinking champagne like a gentleman your pals played you a pretty low trick and that was why i stuck out for you i didn't think you were the kind of man to forget a friend no more i am said he the man who says bill docker would go back on a pal is a liar well here's your chance to pay your debts the men who employ you are my deadly enemies and want to do me in i'm not a match for you you're a stronger fellow and can drag me off and hand me over to them but if you do i'm done with make no mistake about that i put it to you as a decent fellow are you going to go back on the man who has been a good friend to you he shifted from one foot to another with his eyes on the ceiling he was obviously in difficulties then he tried another glass of champagne i durstn't governor i durstn't let you go then my work for would cut my throat as soon as look at me 
Besides, it ain't no good. If I was to go off and leave you, there'd be plenty more in this house as we'd do the job. You're up against it, governor. But take a sensible view and come with me. They don't mean you no real harm. I'll take my Bible oath on it. Only to keep you quiet for a bit, for you've run across one of their games. They won't do you no hurt if you speak em fair. Be a sport and take it smiling-like. You're afraid of them, I said. Yes, I'm afraid. Black afraid. So would you be if you knew the gents. I'd rather take on the whole Rat Lane crowd, you know them as I mean, on a Saturday night when they're out for business, than go back to my gents and say as how I'd shirk the job. He shivered. Good Lord, they'd freeze the heart out of a bullpup. You're afraid, I said slowly. So you're going to give me up to the men you're afraid of to do as they like with me. I never expected it of you, Bill. I thought you were the kind of lad who would send any gang to the devil before you'd go back on a pal. Don't say that, he said almost plaintively. You don't half know the hole I'm in. His eyes seemed to be wandering, and he yawned deeply. Just then a great noise began below. I heard a voice speaking, a loud peremptory voice. Then my name was shouted, Lythen, Lythen, are you there? There could be no mistaking that broad Yorkshire tongue. By some miracle Chapman had followed me and was raising Cain downstairs. My heart leaped with a sudden revelation. I'm here, I yelled, upstairs, come up and let me out. Then I turned with a smile of triumph to Bill. My friends have come, I said. You're too late for the job. Get back and tell your masters that. He was swaying on his feet, and he suddenly lurched towards me. You come along. By God, you think you've done me. I'll let you see. His voice was growing thick, and he stopped short. What the hell's wrong with me, he gasped. I'm going all queer. I... He was like a man far gone in liquor, but three glasses of champagne would never have touched a head like Bill's. I saw what was up with him. He was not drunk, but drugged. They've doped the wine, I cried. They put it there for me to drink it and go to sleep. There is always something which is the last straw to any man. You may insult and outrage him, and he will bear it patiently, but touch the quick in his temper and he will turn. Apparently for Bill, drugging was the unforgivable sin. His eye lost for a moment its confusion. He squared his shoulders and roared like a bull. Doped, by God, he cried. Who done it? The men who shut me in this room. Burst that door and you will find them. He turned a blazing face on the locked door and hurled his huge weight on it. It cracked and bent, but the lock and hinges held. I could see that sleep was overwhelming him and that his limbs were stiffening, but his anger was still strong enough for another effort. Again he drew himself together like a big cat and flung himself on the woodwork. The hinges tore from the jams, and the whole outfit fell forward into the passage in a cloud of splinters and dust and broken plaster. It was Mr. Docker's final effort. He lay on the top of the wreckage he had made, like Samson among the ruins of Gaza, a senseless and slumbering hulk. I picked up the unopened bottle of champagne, it was the only weapon available, and stepped over his body. I was beginning to enjoy myself amazingly. As I expected, there was a man in the corridor, a little fellow in waiter's clothes with a tweed jacket instead of a dress coat. If he had a pistol, I knew I was done, but I gambled upon the disinclination of the management for the sound of shooting. He had a knife, but he never had a chance to use it. My champagne bottle descended on his head and he dropped like a log. There were men coming upstairs, not Chapman, for I still heard his hoarse shouts in the dining room. 
if they once got up they could force me back through that hideous room by the door through which docker had come and in five minutes i should be in their motor-car there was only one thing to do i jumped from the stairhead right down among them i think there were three and my descent toppled them over we rolled in a wild whirling mass and cascaded into the dining-room where my head bumped violently on the parquet i expected a bit of a grapple but none came my wits were pretty woolly but i managed to scramble to my feet the heels of my enemies were disappearing up the staircase chapman was pawing my ribs to discover if there were any bones broken there was not another soul in the room except two policemen who were pushing their way in from the street chapman was flushed and breathing heavily his coat had a big split down the seams at the shoulder but his face was happy as a child's i caught his arm and spoke in his ear we've got to get out of this at once how can we square these policemen there must be no inquiry and nothing in the papers do you hear it's all right said chapman these bobbies are friends of mine two good lads from wensleydale on my road here i told them to give me a bit of law and follow me for i thought they might be wanted they didn't come too soon to spoil sport for i've been knocking furriners about for ten minutes you seem to have been putting up a tidy scrap yourself let's get home first i said for i was beginning to think of the bigger thing i wrote a chit for macgillivray which i asked one of the constables to take the scotland yard it was to beg that nothing should be done yet in the business of the restaurant and above all that nothing should get into the papers then i asked the other to see us home it was a queer request for two able-bodied men to make on a summer evening in the busiest part of london but i was taking no chances the power-house had declared war on me and i knew it would be war without quarter i was in a fever to get out of that place my momentary lust of battle had gone and every stone of that building seemed to me a threat chapman would have liked to spend a happy hour rummaging through the house but the gravity of my face persuaded him the truth is i was bewildered i could not understand the reason of this sudden attack lumley's spies must long ago have told him enough to connect me with the bokhara business my visits to the embassy alone were sufficient proof but now he must have found out something new something which startled him or else there had been wild doings in turkestan i won't forget that walk home in a hurry it was a fine july twilight the streets were full of the usual crowd shop-girls in thin frocks promenading clerks in all the flotsam of a london summer you would have said it was the safest place on earth but i was glad we had the policeman with us who at the end of one beat passed us on to his colleague and i was glad of chapman for i am morally certain i would never have got home alone the queer thing is that there was no sign of trouble till we got into oxford street then i became aware that there were people on those pavements who knew all about me i first observed it at the mouth of one of those little dark side alleys which run up into mews and small dingy courts i found myself being skilfully edged away from chapman into the shadow but i noticed it in time and butted my way back to the pavement i couldn't make out who the people were who hustled me they seemed nondescripts of all sorts but i fancied there were women among them this happened twice and i got wary but i was nearly caught before we reached oxford circus there was a front of a big shop rebuilding and the usual wooden barricade with a gate just as we passed it there was a special throng on the pavement and i being next the wall got pushed against the gate suddenly it gave and i was pressed inward 
I was right inside before I realized my danger, and the gate was closing. There must have been people there, but I could see nothing in the gloom. It was no time for false pride. I yelled to Chapman, and the next second his burly shoulder was in the gap. The hustlers vanished, and I seemed to hear a polite voice begging my pardon. After that, Chapman and I linked arms and struck across Mayfair. But I did not feel safe till I was in the flat with the door bolted. We had a long drink, and I stretched myself in an armchair, for I was as tired as if I had come out of a big game of rugby football. I owe you a good deal, old man, I said. I think I'll join the Labour Party. You can tell your fellows to send me their whips. What possessed you to come to look for me? The explanation was simple. I had mentioned the restaurant in my telephone message, and the name had awakened a recollection in Chapman's mind. He could not fix it at first, but by and by he remembered that the place had cropped up in the Routh case. Routh's London headquarters had been at the restaurant in Antioch Street. As soon as he remembered this, he got into a taxi and descended at the corner of the street, where by sheer luck he fell in with his Wensleydale friends. He said he had marched into the restaurant and found it empty, but for an ill-favoured manager who denied all knowledge of me. Then fortunately he chose to make certain by shouting my name and heard my answer. After that he knocked the manager down and was presently assaulted by several men whom he described as foreign muck. They had knives of which he made very little, for he seems to have swung a table as a battering ram and left sore limbs behind him. He was on the top of his form. I haven't enjoyed anything so much since I was a lad at school, he informed me. I was beginning to think your powerhouse was a washout, but, Lord, it's been busy enough tonight. This is what I call life. My spirits could not keep pace with his. The truth is that I was miserably puzzled, not afraid so much as mystified. I couldn't make out this sudden dead set at me. Either they knew more than I bargained for, or I knew far too little. It's all very well, I said, but I don't see how this is going to end. We can't keep up the pace long. At this rate it will be only a matter of hours till they get me. We pretty well barricaded ourselves in the flat, and, at his earnest request, I restored to Chapman his revolver. Then I got the clue I had been longing for. It was about eleven o'clock while we were sitting smoking when the telephone bell rang. It was Felix who spoke. I have news for you, he said. The hunters have met the hunted, and one of the hunters is dead. The other is a prisoner in our hands. He has confessed. It had been black murder in intent. The frontier police had shadowed the two men into the cup of a glen where they met Tommy and Pitt Heron. The four had spoken together for a little, and then Tuke had fired deliberately at Charles and had grazed his ear, whereupon Tommy had charged him and knocked the pistol from his hand. The assailant had fled, but a long shot from the police on the hillside had toppled him over. Tommy had felled Saranoff with his fists, and the man had abjectly surrendered. He had confessed, Felix said, but what the confession was he did not know. End of chapter 6 Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine